You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Uh, Good morning once again. Well, well, we're trucking right along, so we'll see. Maybe, maybe, Maybe it's a Christmas miracle today. Maybe that's what it is. So I invite you to join me in your Bibles, Luke, Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. We're going to finish Luke 1 today, so we'll land on the birth of Jesus next week. That makes sense, doesn't it? And uh, while, you, while you're making your way there, uh, men, just a PSA for you guys, uh, when you count today, you have eight shopping days left to get your, your wife or your significant other uh, a gift for Christmas or many gifts for Christmas and really, that's not true because next Sunday is Christmas Eve. You can't wait till Christmas Eve this year because we have church on Christmas Eve. So you need to be here and not out shopping for your watch. So you need to do that before the 24th. So I'm just trying to save you a little bit of, I'm just trying to be a help to you. All right. So none of you are getting that. Anyway, Luke chapter one, I'm done. I've got, I've, where's my wife? I've got all her stuff. That is a Christmas miracle, let me tell you. She, she is done for. So I better just get to the Bible and preach in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. We'll read down to verse 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And all God's people said, Father, as always, thank you for the great privilege that I have to stand here and behind this, this holy desk, this sacred desk, and to preach your holy word. And I just pray that you would enable me to do it in this hour, that I would rightly divide it and apply it to your people, that, that we would be encouraged and, and also challenged through the preaching of your word today. But above all, I pray that, that you would be lifted up, that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified uh, through the preaching of your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like to shop? How many of you just really enjoy shopping? How many of you abhor shopping? <laughs> Great. Me too. My hand, my hand is raised too. A few weeks ago, we were, this was I think just before Thanksgiving, we were preparing to go uh, to Oklahoma, and we've, we were out shopping as a family. That's always a great way to add joy to my life, is to take me shopping. So we, we went shopping, and did you catch that? We, we went shopping, and we were in the store, and there was a, a young boy in the store, I don't know, five, six years old, with his mother, and this child was having an epic meltdown. You, you've all seen the child have the epic meltdown in the store. Well, this was the meltdown of all meltdowns, save for one, which I will share with you in just a moment. But th- this, this child was, was fit to be tied, and the whole store could hear it. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This is a big store. The whole store could hear it. We just happened to be in close proximity to where this was happening. I, I believe they were in the toy section, and I believe the boy was upset because he wanted a toy. And I think his mother was there to buy a toy for someone else. I don't know, but certainly she wasn't there to buy a toy for him. And he, he wasn't going to get the toy, but he was adamant that he really needed the toy, and he wanted the toy, and he was, he was, he was fit to be tied. He was angry, he was He was loud and he was very proud and the whole store could hear it. And this was going on, I'm not exaggerating, for at least 30 minutes, maybe a little bit longer. And it got so bad, like for for the first 10 minutes, it's hurting my ears. And finally, I begin to think somebody needs to have a conversation with mom. And and maybe that someone should be me. Maybe I should go up and, and just say, hey, hey, you know what? I think maybe you need to put your foot down and maybe you need to show this child who's boss. You need to maybe discipline the child a little bit and make him understand that when you talk, he's supposed to listen. I I threw a fit once in in the mall when I was about that age. I I was five, six years old. I was with my mother and my three sisters and not in a store, but in the middle of the mall, I was done. And I threw myself down on the floor in the middle of the mall and I started kicking and flailing like this and screaming at at the top of my lungs. Not kidding. That was the meltdown of all meltdowns. But you know what? My mother put the fear of God in me, and I never did that again until I got married. <laughs> Ain't that right, dear? It's about right. Except I don't, don't throw myself from the floor anymore. But in any case, I, I really don't like to shop. But in any case, sometimes, my point is, sometimes parents must discipline their children. So that the children understand that when, when, the, when the parent speaks, the child is supposed to listen. Can, can we all say amen to that? So in the same way, when our heavenly father speaks, guess what? We should likewise 
uh, listen. Zechariah learned this lesson the hard way. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, we saw the angel appear to him to announce the impending birth of his son. But Zechariah did not believe. Kind of like the little boy in that store that day. Zechariah kind of stuck his fingers in his ears and said, Nana, nana, boo, boo, I see your lips moving, but I'm not listening to what you're saying. I'm not having that. But unlike the little boy, Zechariah was disciplined by the Lord. He's not punished. He's disciplined. There is a difference between punishment and discipline. And I believe that any good parent, any good father or mother who really loves their, parent, their children, they will discipline their children. They will do it in love, and they will do it for the good of their children. The same is true with our Heavenly Father. Sometimes He disciplines us. The Lord disciplined Zechariah because he did not believe the words of the Lord. The nature of the discipline is that he, he would be mute until everything that the Lord had said through the angel is fulfilled. Until that time, he would be mute. And so I, I kind of like to illustrate it this way. This was God's way of putting Zechariah in time out. You know, if you, if you don't like to, you know, spank your children, time out is, is a decent option. And so I think that's what God does. Go sit in the corner, Zechariah, and be quiet and think about your behavior and think about your actions and think about why when I speak, you should listen. And so God put him in, in time out. Once everything was fulfilled, then Zechariah would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God means what he says and says what he means. Now, with all of that said, look at what we read in verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Compared to the birth of Jesus, there's almost no details here concerning the birth of John. Luke just kind of simply tells us, and oh yeah, by the way, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and oh, by the way, she gave birth to a, a son. So the, the, the point is not to give us these small little details concerning the birth of John. The point is to let us know that when God speaks, we should listen because God is always true to his word. You may also recall, and if you look back earlier in chapter 1 and verse 14, the angel not only spoke of a son, but also promised that the son would bring joy. You'll see verse 14 of chapter 1 says, you will have joy and gladness. This is the angel speaking for the Lord and speaking to Zechariah. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Certainly we can imagine the joy that Zechariah and Elizabeth experience in this moment. This, this is something that they had longed for for many years. And, and this was something now that they had, you know, they were well past the normal age of childbearing. They, they just had lost all hope for a child. But, but now they received this child. So obviously... I think it's fair to assume that they are filled with joy. I, I like to you know, illustrate this, another illustration here, by illustrating this from the life of Ralphie in the movie The Christmas Story. You're familiar with Ralphie in The Christmas Story? What does Ralphie want against all hope? Ralphie wants the Red Ryder BB gun. That's all that he wants. And, and he goes from one person to the next. Hey, I, I, want, the, I want the Red Rider BB gun. And they all tell him, you can't have the Red Rider BB gun. You, you'll shoot your eye out from, from one person to the next. And then finally, he wakes up on Christmas Day. And this is, what he, this is what he's hoping for against all hope. And he wakes up on Christmas Day. And what does he get? He gets the pink bunny outfit. And then, and then his father surprises him with the Red Ryder BB gun, and he's so filled with joy, he promptly goes outside, and he actually shoots his eye out, but kind of, sort of, that's what he does, but he's filled with joy because he's received this gift that he didn't think was possible, 
And I think we see something similar to that here in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The birth of this child was the long-awaited gift that they thought would never happen. So they must have been overjoyed like a kid on Christmas. But in fulfillment of Luke 1.14, Luke also highlights the joy of many in verse 58, where he says, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. A, a more literal rendering of verse 58 would be something like this. They heard that the Lord had magnified his mercy toward her. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. If you were here last week, or even if you were just present a few moments ago, when young Colton there, the preacher in training, read scripture for us, because it was in there as well. In verse 46, Mary declared, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the very same word in both verses. And so with John's birth, the Lord's mercy was magnified in Elizabeth's life. We, we talked about magnification, and we talked about telescope last week when, when we were talking about Mary. And so with John's birth, the Lord's mercy was magnified. It was brought closer for others to see. When others saw the joy that she was experiencing at the birth of this son, they realized, oh my goodness, God has really been merciful to Elizabeth. Now, I want us to talk about the word mercy for just a moment. Mercy is a very important theme. It's a prominent theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Luke. Luke will later say, Luke 6.36, well, Jesus will say it. He, he will say, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Luke will portray Jesus as being full of mercy. So this is a really important theme in the Gospel. It's also important in the text that's before us today. So what is mercy? Mercy carries the idea of pity and compassion. Think of it like this. Pity be, or mercy begins with a feeling of sympathy at the misfortune or suffering of someone and then doing something about it. So there, there's a twofold aspect to mercy. It begins with feelings of sympathy and pity. You see someone in a difficult situation. You see that they're hurting. You see that they are in need and you, you have pity on them and compassion, but then you're moved to do something about it. That is mercy. So there's the twofold aspect of mercy. And that's what the Lord has done here. With sympathy and compassion, he looked down and he saw Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he saw their difficult situation, their hopeless situation in regards to a child. He took pity upon them. He had compassion. And he, he did something about it by giving them the gift of this child. This parallels, in case you haven't seen it, I'll draw a picture for you. This parallels God's mercy towards us. Think about it, church. God, God looked down upon man. God is sitting on his throne in the glory and perfection of heaven. And he looks down and he sees us in our lowly estate. And what does he do? He takes pity upon us. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on for just a moment. Because God didn't have to do that, did he? God could have sat there on his throne in the glory and perfection of heaven. And he could have looked down at man who had rebelled against him, rebelled against his rule, who had turned his good creation upside down. You've heard me explain this before. Why is our world the way it is? It's because of man's sin. We are the one who have introduced all of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and all the rest of it in this world. God could have looked down from his throne in heaven and saw us in our lowly estate. You know what he could have said? He could have said, you made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. You ever said that to somebody? 
Have you ever said that about somebody? I'm not, I, I'm not going to call for a show of hands. As a Christian, I'm going to suggest to you, from this point forward, you should never say those words ever again. Never again should you say those words to anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, to put themselves in the situation that they are in. Because it's not very Christ-like, is it? Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, sitting on his throne in the glory and perfection of heaven, who gave us many good gifts, this wonderful creation of his, we turned it upside down. And he looked down from his throne and he did not say, you made your bed, now you have to lie in it. And praise be to God. Can, Can we say praise be to God that he did not say that? With feelings of sympathy and compassion, he was, he was moved to action. He got up off of his throne. He sunk himself into human flesh in the incarnation. He came to live among us and to dwell among us. He experienced everything that you and I experience in this life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with the exception of sin. Obviously, he never sinned, but he experienced all the other stuff that we experience in this life. And with all pity and with all compassion, he went to the cross and he died there on the cross in the ultimate act of mercy, offering forgiveness of sin, redemption, the promise of everlasting life for all who will believe. Can somebody please say amen? So here's an application for you from this before we move on. Sometimes, church, if we are not careful... We can fall into the rut of life and we can begin to question God's mercy and his goodness towards us. Sometimes life doesn't turn out the way that we had hoped or the way that we had imagined. Sometimes things don't go our way or when trials and difficulties come or when God's blessings seem few and far between, we can begin to question the mercy of God. Well, well, why hasn't God shown mercy to me? Why is he blessing them and why has he not shown mercy to me? Why hasn't he blessed me in this way? Where is his pity and where is his compassion toward me? Church, if that is you, if you fall into that rut sometimes, I know I've said this before, but let me just say it again, just to remind you because this is really important. You must remember that God has demonstrated his mercy towards you once and for all. And he did it on the cross of Calvary. And you need to believe that. You need to trust that. And so when you begin to question the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God, do two things. Dwell, first of all, on the incarnation, the fact that God got up off of his throne and sunk himself into human flesh to come here, and then also dwell on the fact that he then went to the cross and he died there in your place. And you will see and you will feel, I hope, the mercy of God. We go on in verse 59, and Luke is continuing to narrate, and he says, on the eighth day... They came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. If you look closely there, there's, there's a question, well, who are the they in verse 59? Well, the they there in verse 59, as far as I am concerned, are, are the, the friends and the relatives of Elizabeth and Zechariah. They are the ones that we just read about who were rejoicing with Elizabeth. And so when John is eight days old, Luke says they come to circumcise the boy. That sounds a little strange, like you're not going to come to my house and circumcise my boy, right? Just, you know, what's the deal? Well, probably what's really happening here is that they have been invited by Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are close friends and they are relatives and neighbors. And this is a special day. The boy is going to be circumcised. So why don't you guys come and be a part of this special celebration? 
It's akin to when we have a, a, a baptism here or maybe when we have a, a baby dedication, you guys invite your friends, you invite your family, you invite your relatives to come and be a part of that service. Maybe you go out to lunch afterwards because it's a big deal. And so circumcision obviously was a big deal in this culture. It was done in fulfillment of the law on the eighth day. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 12 if you want to. But not only would the child be circumcised on this day, he would also be named on this day. And you will notice that as they gather, these friends and relatives and neighbors, they just start referring to this boy as Zechariah. They just assume that he's going to be named after his father. And I know what this is like. I've told you all before, I am CWO the third, which means I'm named after my father and my father's father. And I'm not going to tell you what the C stands for. You can probably guess what the W stands for, but I'm not going to tell you what the C stands for because I really don't care for that name. But when my boys were born, when they came into this world, I felt a little bit of pressure from, from my family. I think they just, they had hoped maybe uh, that when they were born that, you know, Calvin, when he was born, that he would be CWO, the fourth. And I said, nah, I don't really want to do that. I did give him my initials, but not my name. If you want to start your own CWO line, that's up to you. Then Malcolm comes along and same thing. Are, are you going to name him after your father and your father's father? Nope, not going to do that. I wanted them to have their own name. I wanted them to make their own name in this world. And I did not want them to feel pressure to follow in, in my footsteps. So there's a little bit of pressure here from the friends and the family and the relatives. They assume that the boy will be named Zechariah. But you'll notice that Elizabeth is not going to have anything of it. She says, no, his name is John. Well, now, how does she know that this boy is supposed to be named John? The angel appeared to Zechariah and told him. So how does she know? We don't know. Did Zechariah tell her? Well, he can't talk. Did he write her a little note and say, when this baby of yours comes, we're going to name him John? Maybe. Or, or is she just still filled up with the Holy Spirit? Last week we saw her get all Baptocostal. Maybe, maybe she's still filled up with the Holy Spirit. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, she just knows that this boy is to be named John. We don't really know how she knows. But one thing we do know is that what God had said earlier is coming to fruition. Because when God speaks, God's children should listen. He says what he means, and he means what he says. So in verse 61, they respond, and they say, none of your relatives is called by this name. We object, <laughs> your honor. No, no, no. We, we strenuously, we strenuously object. You've got to name this boy Zachariah. Special gold star for anyone who can figure this out before it comes out of my lips. And I'll take you at your word if you come up to me after the service and tell me, do you know what this is? Do you know what's going on here? You know what Luke is explaining for us here? This is the great reversal. And if you don't know what I'm talking about in the great reversal, go back and look at the previous two sermons. I'm not going to explain it again today. But this is the great reversal unfolding right here in the naming of this child. God is beginning the process of turning things upside down right here. Because the cultural and the religious expectation is that this child would be named after his father, or if not named after his father, someone in the family. But there's another expectation here as well that is unspoken in the text, but it's definitely there. Who is Zechariah? Zechariah is a priest. He's of the tribe of Levi. 
And so this, the expectation for this child is that not only would he be named after his father or someone in the family, but that he would also follow in the footsteps of his father into the priesthood. But guess what? God had other plans. And God is beginning the process of turning everything upside down, and he's going to rock their world. And like many people who will come after these people, they don't give up their dearly held beliefs and traditions all that easily. In verse 62, they appealed to Zechariah, and, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Well, well, surely Zechariah wants him to be called Zechariah. No, I don't. Don't call me Shirley, Zechariah said to these people. And he, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote. Now, full stop. Stop right there. You know, remember, Zechariah well, he's being disciplined by the Lord. He's been in timeout all this time now for nine months. He's been unable to speak. And we learn here that he, he still can't talk. So we, so we ask for a, a writing tablet. So now the question is, well, well has he learned his lesson? And the, and the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he has. He writes on the tablet, his name is John. Just as the angel told him, the angel said, this boy, when he is born, you're to name him John. And so that's exactly what it was. Yes, his name is John. And then we read, the people wondered, why are Zechariah and Elizabeth so attached to this name? They, can't, they cannot figure it out. It makes no sense whatsoever in their minds. And they, they, just, they just cannot figure it out. They, they think they are absolutely crazy. That's what's going on here because they can't figure it out. So church, here's another application. Sometimes, sometimes, when God works in our lives or when God calls us to something, other people may not understand it. They may not know what's going on. They may not get it. And they may actually think that you're crazy. They, 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 really, they might think you're plumb crazy. In fact, that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus in his ministry, if you read the Gospels very closely, you will see that his family came and they said, we're going to take you away in a straitjacket and we're going to put you in a rubber room. Okay, they didn't say it that way. But that's exactly what they meant. When they understood that he was claiming to be the Messiah and God in human flesh and all of those other things, they're like, this guy's gone off the rails. He's plumb crazy. They really thought that about him. And that's what these people think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. But Jesus stayed the course, thankfully, and he remained faithful to God's call on his life. I know what this is like. I've experienced this too. When I submitted to the call to the pastorate, there were some people who did not agree. They said, no, nope, that's crazy. God would never call you or someone like you to the pastorate. And I've had to deal with that the entire time I've been in the ministry. Here's one thing that I have learned since I submitted to that call. The proof is ultimately in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. If God has truly called us to something, there will come a point in time when the results will prove it for all to see where it will be undeniable. And to Zach. Amen. And to Zachariah's credit, he remained faithful to the message that the angel gave him. No matter the pressure that his friends and his family and his relatives were applying to him, he, he remained faithful to the message of the angel. Your wife will bear a son, and you shall call him John. And that's exactly what he does. And so now we read in verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. I love that word. It's one of my favorite Greek words. And he spoke, blessing God. And so now the discipline of the Lord is removed. All right, church, here's another application. There's comfort, comfort for us here in the example of Zechariah. And here's the comfort. His earlier failure will not be his defining moment in the eyes of God. His earlier failure will not be 
what defines him in the eyes of God. And this is good news for every single one of us because every single one of us fail God from time to time. Can you agree with that statement? I hope so. Because if you're of the opinion that you don't fail in your worship, your service, your devotion to God as a follower of Christ, if you're of the opinion that you don't fail, or if you cannot ever see where you fail in your devotion and your service to God, I, I would say to you, you've got a problem. You've got a very serious problem, and I mean that, with love in my heart. And as a pastor, I would tell you, if you cannot see the points in which you fail in your devotion, your service to God, you've got a problem. The Bible is very clear. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we see this happen with the great saints in Scripture over and over and over again. Thankfully, our God is a God of second chances. Somebody say amen to that. Especially for those who are humble. And that's another theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke. Let, let me say it this way, okay? And I believe this is true. God does not demand perfect obedience from his children. Because he knows that his children cannot obey him perfectly. Just like your little children and my little children cannot obey me perfectly. They can't do it. No matter how hard they try, they can't do it. Maybe you think your children can, but I, I promise you that they, they can't. And you know why that is? And you probably know that they can't. But you, do you know why that is? Because little children, their, their minds, their brains, they're not fully formed yet. And so they, they can't get it. They can't connect all of the dots as to why they should listen to what you're saying. And so that's why they can't obey you perfectly. Well, guess what? So long as we live in this world and in this body of flesh, we are, we are not fully formed spiritually. And that's why we cannot worship God and obey God and serve God in complete perfection in this life. And that's why he doesn't demand perfect obedience from us. But one thing he does demand, church, and this I am certain of, he demands humility from his people. He demands that his children be humble, that they spend regular time in spiritual reflection so that they would be open to seeing the things the way that God would want them to see it, so that they would be open to seeing God work in new and fresh ways if that would be what God wants them to see. God wants his children to be humble and to spend time in spiritual reflection so that they can see the points in which they fall short of the glory of God in their service of him, of him and their worship of him. So, so church, just remember, all right, God doesn't demand perfect obedience, but he does demand humility. Verse 65, Luke is continuing to narrate, and he says, and fear came on all their neighbors. They recognize that something divine and something transcendent has occurred. God is up to something, but they just can't figure it out what it is. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Word is spreading fast that God is up to something. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, when, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. If you'd like to mark your Bibles, I would encourage you to mark that phrase, laying these things up in their hearts. That actually speaks of reflection, what I was just talking about a moment ago. These people didn't understand who John was. They didn't understand how God would use him. They didn't understand all that was going on around them, but they were willing to reflect on it all. 
They were open and willing to have God show them. And so church, just again, I would just say to you, I think that's who God wants his children to be. We must be willing to reflect on how God is working in our own lives, in the lives of others, in the life of our church. We must be open to seeing things differently if need be. But above all, church, we must be humble and we must have pliable hearts. Ask yourself this question. If I am wrong about something, do I want to know it? Do I, do, do I want someone to, to tell me that I'm wrong about something? If the answer to that question is no, no, I don't want to know if I'm wrong about something, then that means you don't have a pliable heart in the humble heart. I think God demands that of us, his children. So think about, church, if, if you have trouble with that, think about how you can be more humble and have more of a pliable heart. Verse 67, shift gears a little bit here at the end, and we read, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So just like last week, Elizabeth gets filled up with the Holy Spirit. She goes Baptocostal, and she gives her prophecy. So now it's Zechariah's turn. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give us a prophecy. And it begins in verse 68, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Later on in Luke, Jesus will lament the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he will say, the words will come right out of his mouth, Luke 19, 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus says to the people of Israel, he's lamenting over the, the coming destruction of how God's hand of protection will be removed from them and the judgment of God will come upon them. Why? Jesus says, because they did not know the time of their visitation. The nation of Israel, they did not reflect on who Jesus was. And they were not open to seeing how God was using him and how God was working through him. And therefore, because of that, they missed the time of their visitation. They missed the time of their redemption. Now, there there is a question here concerning, well, what kind of redemption is Zechariah talking about? Is he speaking of political redemption? You know, is he talking about the destruction of the enemies of God's people? Is he talking about political redemption? Or is he speaking about spiritual redemption? Redemption from Satan and sin and, and eternal death. And the answer is yes. Yes. Is both. <laughs> it's both. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you, that the Old Testament prophets, they foretold of, of the Messiah coming in, in two advents. Remember that? There, there's two different ways that the Old Testament prophets foresaw the coming of the Messiah. They, they saw him, first of all, coming as a suffering servant to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of men, providing spiritual redemption and salvation. They foresaw that. But they also saw a second advent of the Messiah that he would come back a second time to establish once and for all his political rule on this earth, a physical kingdom where he would come back and he would wage war and he would, he would vanquish and defeat all of the enemies of God and God's people. And, and, and then he would rule and reign alongside his redeemed for all eternity. That was the vision that the Old Testament prophets gave us of the Messiah. And so like an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah is prophesying of this twofold vision of the Messiah. First, I want you to see how he speaks of political redemption. In verse 69, he says, 
and has raised up a, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When you see horn there, think of the, the horns on a bull. It's something powerful, something strong. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So God's visitation means a powerful salvation is at hand through the house of David. And we already know, Luke has told us, that Jesus is going to be an earthly descendant of David. He goes on in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I, I have no doubt that this is a vision of the Messiah's second advent that he's talking about here. When Jesus comes back a second time, he will come riding that white horse. He will come to wage war. He will come to defeat the enemies of God and the enemies of, of God's people and, and save us from all of that. Then he goes on in verse 72, to show the mercy, there's the word mercy, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. You know, the, the nation of Israel is, is in the news these days. It's a hot topic these days. A lot of people are talking about it. I don't have the right answers. You know, how, how does the nation of Israel today fit into the plan of God? I, I don't know. That, that's a mystery to be revealed. I know what I believe, but, but none of us ultimately know. That's something that we will only know for sure on the other side of eternity. But here's something that may help you in this discussion or something to think about. The New Testament writers always take the promises of the Old Testament, they always take it back to Abraham and not to the nation of Israel itself. And that's exactly what Zechariah and Luke does here. God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Abraham and specifically through the descendants of Abraham. Now, church, a lot of people today claim to be the rightful descendants of Abraham. A lot of people do. The Muslims, the Arabs, they claim to be the descendants of Abraham. Obviously, the nation of Israel, the Jews, they claim to be the descendants of Abraham. Well, where in the world does that leave us? Who are we? Because we're not physical descendants of Abraham. None of us, I would imagine, in this room. So where does that leave us? How in the world do we fit into those, those promises? We have to understand. According to Jesus, if you read them very closely, and if you go and read Paul, and specifically in the book of Galatians, which we studied when I first got here, go back and read it, I think you will see, I think you will see that both teach that the true descendants of Abraham are not physical, but spiritual. Somebody say, Amen. I, I am adopted into the family of Abraham, Paul says in the book of Galatians, through faith in Jesus Christ. And he is the heir of all of those promises, Paul says in Galatians, all of those promises that, may, that God made to Abraham. Jesus is the heir of all of those things. And because of my faith in Jesus Christ, then I become a true descendant, a spiritual descendant of Abraham and a co-heir with Christ. So just, just something for some of you to think about. Then he goes on to say, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I want you to notice something really important here, church. Zechariah is continuing to prophesy, and he sees a religion, and he's, he's prophesying concerning the political deliverance, the second advent of the Messiah. And he sees a religious reason for this political deliverance. Look at it very closely. It's so that God's people can serve him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness. 
is so that God's people can serve him and worship him as God originally intended it to be. Church, you need to remember something. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. God's plan from the beginning was to fill the earth with worshipers. He put Adam and Eve on this earth and he said, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. They were to subdue the earth and they, they, were, to, they were to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth with worshipers of God. But all of that was lost when Adam and Eve fell into sin and they rebelled against God. What did they do in their rebellion? They decided to exalt themselves above God. They decided to exalt themselves above being mere worshipers of God, and they bought into the lie that they could actually be like God themselves. And the result of their sin and their rebellion is a world that is cursed by man's sin, death, disease, famine, wars, and other consequences, including our imperfect worship of God and our imperfect devotion and obedience to God. That's part of the consequences of the sin of man and the fall of this world. No one obeys and worships God perfectly. But Zechariah's prophecy sees a time when all of that will change. When the Messiah comes to establish God's eternal kingdom on this earth in all of its fullness, that is when God's people will truly worship Him in all holiness and righteousness and without fear. The book of Revelation actually gives us a glimpse into what this looks like. I told you lately I love my Bible. Revelation chapter 21. John the Apostle is writing through the power of the Holy Spirit. He sees a vision of this time. And he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is the place of worship, right? Well, who, where's the temple in this heavenly city, this eternal kingdom? Jesus is the temple because he's the object of our worship. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. How cool is that? For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. How cool is that? By its light will the nations, literally Gentiles, by its light the nation, us, the true spiritual descendants of Abraham. Anyone can be a spiritual descendant of Abraham, whether they're Arab, whether they're Jewish, or whether they're born right here in Kansas City, Missouri. Anyone can be among the nations here. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. You know what a gate is in an ancient city? In an ancient city, a gate is actually a weapon of war. Did you know that? A gate is a weapon of war. It's a defensive weapon. It is intended to keep the enemy out. It's very important here when John says the gates never close. Why? Because the enemies are gone. They've been defeated. It's a huge detail. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, this is your future, church. There is a time coming where you will worship Him in perfect truth and holiness and righteousness. Somebody say amen. And somebody say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come get us now. Unfortunately, this is the second advent of the Messiah. <laughs> but He must come first as a spiritual Savior and a spiritual Redeemer. And now that's the vision of the Messiah that Zechariah gives us 
at the end. He says in verse 76, And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. There had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. This is a significant statement. Zechariah says, you will be a prophet of the Most High God. You will be the first prophet of God in 400 years. And he has come to prepare the way for the Messiah's first visitation, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. What kind of salvation? In the forgiveness of their sins. That's the reason why he came the first time. John would later say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I want you to put all of this together, church, and I want you to think about it for a second. There is a reason why. There's a reason why the Messiah had to come first as the spiritual visitation, to offer spiritual salvation and redemption. Why is that? That's because he had to come first because we cannot properly worship God without forgiveness of sin. Do you see how all of that fits together? We actually are told in Revelation 21, verse 27, the very next verse, and those verses that I read just a moment ago, the very next verse says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. In other words, if you've never been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've not received forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ, you will not enter into that heavenly city, that eternal city, and engage in the perfect worship of God. Because no unclean thing will enter it. You can only enter it by salvation, having forgiveness of sin through faith in the first advent of the Messiah. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's an emphasis here on light. And Jesus, of course, would later declare in his ministry, he would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so John's ministry, he would come to point to Jesus as the Messiah, who came first of all to shine the light of spiritual salvation in a dark world. The Messiah who came to offer the people peace with God. And why? Look very closely at what Zechariah says. It's because of the tender mercy of God. Write that down. Underline it. Mark it. The tender mercy of God. What a beautiful expression that is. Make note of it. Write it on your forehead if you have to, or on your hand or your wrist or whatever. Make note of it. The tender mercy of God. With pity and compassion, God looked upon our sin and our rebellion, and He decided to offer us peace and reconciliation through the gift of His Son, the gift of His Messiah. As I said earlier, He very easily could have said from His throne, He could have looked down and He said, well, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. But that's not what he did. With pity and compassion, he was moved to do something about our lowly estate, and to offer us forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life, the tender mercy of God. I am reminded in this moment of the mercy of Abraham Lincoln. Any student of Abraham Lincoln should know that one of his defining traits of his life was mercy. The man was full 
of mercy. He's a, he's a hero of mine. If you ever have the opportunity to read some really solid books on Abraham Lincoln, you should, you should do it. He was a genius, but he was also filled with mercy. At the end of the Civil War, he was asked how he planned to treat the rebellious Confederates, the people who had rebelled against his political rule. And he said, and I quote, I will treat them as if they had never been away. I'm, I'm willing to reconcile with them as if nothing had ever happened at all. That's amazing. That never happens in this world in which we live. With that kind of rebellion, when the rebellion is over and the rebellion loses, the people who were part of the rebellion, you know what happens to them? <laughs> Off with their heads or hanged. That's not what he wanted to do. And that's not what happened, thanks to him. And many people responded. They said, but, but Abe, don't you know that they, they rebelled against your rule? They're rebels. You should hang them. You should have every single one of them hung, hanged. I don't know my grammar on that one. Lincoln said, no, we must not hang them. We must hang on to them. That's a direct quote. It's exactly what he said. Imagine for a moment, Satan, the throne of God, and he's up there and he's saying, look, 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 look at their rebellion. Look at what they've done. Look at how they rebelled against you. You need to hang them. God, you need to hang them. They've made their bed. Make them lie in it. No, God said, no. We must not hang them. We must hang on to them. I will treat them as if they had never been away. I will treat them as if they had never sinned at all by offering them the gift of my son, Jesus Christ. God is a great God and a God of tender, tender mercy. And don't you ever, ever forget it, church. And all praise and all glory unto him. Amen. Father, thank you so much that you are a God of tender mercy. Thank you that you didn't hang us when we deserved to hang. Thank you that you looked down upon us in our lowly estate. You felt pity for us, compassion for us, and you were moved to do something about it. Becoming yourself, taking on human flesh yourself, and coming to live among us, to go to the cross and die in our place, to take what we rightly deserve, that you hung on the cross in our place, for all who will trust and believe. Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy. Thank you that you did not say you've made your bed, now lie in it. Help us, Lord, to be people of mercy, just as you are a God of tender mercy. Pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one, one more song. And it's a time of response. It's a time of invitation. I guess two questions for you at this time of response. Number one, have you received the gift of God's peace and mercy that is available only through faith in Jesus the Messiah? It's a gift that God is giving to you. But like any other gift at this time of year, that gift is not yours until you take it and you open it, and you take what's inside that box, and you make it yours. And the same is true with salvation and forgiveness of sin. You've got to take it by faith, and you've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross 
in your place and he was raised to life again if you've never made that decision i would encourage you to do so the second question this morning is this for those of us who have received the mercy of god are you being merciful as your heavenly father is merciful something to think about this morning as we sing this one last song